If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. RCMP under fire for a wellness check that went wrong. Startling video from a lawsuit loaded with damaging allegations. Relief for Strata owners. Too many people have seen the cost of strata insurance skyrocket. What the province is doing to help. And a new round of COVID modeling. We managed to flatten our curve very effectively in BC. The crucial clues about what to expect as we head into phase three. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at six. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Shocking surveillance video is part of a lawsuit filed by a Kelowna nursing student suing RCMP for assault. According to the claim, Mona Wang was in mental distress when her boyfriend called 911 and asked for a health check. Global's Jules Knox has more on what's alleged to have happened. And we should warn you that some of the images in this report are disturbing. An RCMP officer dragged Mona Wang, a UBC Okanagan nursing student, handcuffed down the hallway during what should have been a wellness check. That's according to a lawsuit filed by the student against the officer involved, Canada's Attorney General and BC's Public Safety Minister, which is responsible for the actions of RCMP. In this surveillance video, wearing only pants and a sports bra, Wang is dragged into her building's lobby, and as she tries to lift her head, Constable Lacey Browning puts her foot down, forcing Wang's head back to the floor. Then, a minute later, the officer pulls Wang's hair to lift her head up. According to this civil claim, on January 20th, Wang was in mental distress, and so her boyfriend had called 911. Browning responded and found Wang lying semi-conscious on the bathroom floor next to empty pill bottles. According to the civil response, RCMP had been told Wang had a history of prior suicide attempts. In court documents, the officer alleges that Wang was behaving erratically and acting in a manner that was likely to endanger her safety, so Browning arrested her under the Mental Health Act. The defendants say that, quote, in light of the plaintiff's volatile demeanor, aggressive actions and repeated refusals to follow commands, the limited use of force by the defendant Browning was no more than was reasonable and necessary in the circumstances. The civil suit claims that Wang suffers from psychological and emotional trauma, as well as several physical injuries. The defendants deny that Wang suffered any injuries as a result of the events at issue, but Tuesday afternoon, RCMP announcing that Browning is now on desk duty and that an internal code of conduct and criminal investigation is underway, which an outside police department will be independently reviewing. Wang is seeking punitive and exemplary damages against the defendants. In her lawsuit, she calls the actions of Browning and the RCMP reckless, arrogant, and abusive. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. Now, a sign BC is getting closer to entering phase three. 
Dr. Bonnie Henry now indicating she can support travel within the province. This as she announced our latest numbers. There have been 13 new cases in BC in the last 24 hours, bringing the total number of cases since the pandemic began to 2,835. There has been one additional death linked to long-term care. 16 people are in hospital, seven of them in ICU. There are 174 active cases in our province, 2,491 people who tested positive for COVID-19 have now fully recovered. Now, Dr. Henry says the latest data shows BC is striking the right balance between reopening the economy and protecting public health. Richard Zussman has the details on today's COVID-19 modeling data and the signal from Dr. Henry that there could be good news in the near future. For weeks, British Columbians have slowly been heading back to normal, and this has the province's top doctor on high alert. This is my nervous level, so we want to stay right about where we are. On Tuesday, Dr. Bonnie Henry presenting a new round of modelling. It shows British Columbia's head of the curve when it comes to COVID rates, not just around the world, but in Canada as well, with low rates of transmission and low deaths. But it also shows British Columbians are at contact levels of around 65%, meaning on average, people are doing about two-thirds the daily activities they did pre-COVID. And that has Dr. Henry heeding caution. I don't see us rapidly increasing. I think uh, what I see is us maintaining this balance. But it doesn't mean not reopening. It just means doing so at a safe distance. Dr. Henry advising province-wide travel is around the corner, adding to the current trend where visits to transit stations, retail locations and workspaces are all slowly going up. As we gradually move into um, more um, things like hotels and spas and travel, we are going to increase those contacts. But we all, each of us, have to keep that, um, those bubbles small. There are still some geographic areas of concern. Fraser East, including Abbotsford, with 459 cases overall and 67 in the last two weeks, the highest area in the province. But this could change as British Columbians move around. Destination BC set soon to launch an advertising campaign to encourage staycations. For now, no plans for the government to provide financial help for those BC vacations. We're working really closely with the tourism sector. Uh, we've been working extremely closely over the past three months to identify their concerns and what they need moving forward. The question for many is who I can travel with or spend more time with as the data shows things are going well. I do think we are at a place where we can do um, cautiously more social connection, things that we need. But the top doctor warning not to expand too fast and each individual circumstance is different. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the unsettling situation in Washington State. Mm. Keith, how could it impact phase three here? Yeah, it's, it's exactly the question I put to Dr. Bonnie Henry, because what we're seeing down just south of the border is extraordinary. Almost 600 cases of COVID-19 reported today in Washington State. Eight more deaths, almost 1,300 people have died there compared to our 170. And the case numbers just keep piling up on a daily basis. So uh, the border is closed except for essential travel, which means some people are crossing the border back and forth, notably commercial truck drivers. I asked Dr. Bonnie Henry whether she's worried about the rising numbers in Washington State and potential impact on phase three. And here Here's her answer. 
It's very concerning watching what's going on in, in Washington. I, I know um, uh, they've been doing some really great work there in, in terms of the, the public health work and they are able to locate, uh, they, they have a couple of quite large outbreaks in, in processing plants and things. I don't see it as affecting us. We do know that we have people, um, particularly truckers, who are going back and forth with essential goods across the border. But we have had that for some time and there is a process that they need to follow. And Washington State Governor late this afternoon, Jay Inslee, uh, instituted an order that everyone in Washington State now, completely across the state, statewide, it will be mandatory for them to wear a mask if they go out in public starting on Friday. Quite an extraordinary move there. Now, today's briefing by Dr. Bonnie Henry was her 100th since this whole thing began, predating even the beginning of the pandemic. She won't have one tomorrow, though. We're going to hear from Premier John Horgan and his weekly availability. The speculation around here is he may make a formal announcement. We're into phase three. All right, I think we lost Keith there right at the very end. Obviously, a lot of people watching those briefings with great interest. And a new Insights West poll shows nearly 40% of B.C. workers are reluctant to return to work due to COVID-19 safety concerns. Just 20% of employees surveyed are very comfortable with the prospect of going back to their workplace. 43% are feeling only somewhat comfortable. 24% are not very comfortable, while 12% feel not at all comfortable. Men are far more likely to feel comfortable returning to work than women, 71% versus 58%. Workers aged 55 and older are feeling less comfortable, 55%, than their younger counterparts. And 65% of those aged 19 to 34 and 66% of those 35 to 54-year-olds are comfortable going back. City of Vancouver is now moving ahead with a loosening of liquor laws. City Council has passed a motion that will allow you to enjoy a beer or wine in select public places. A similar motion was defeated earlier in the month on a tie vote. Opponents had pointed to Vancouver's chief health officer who has warned that BC has a culture of binge drinking. Today's motion passed by a vote of 8 to 2. According to Canada's National Housing Agency, COVID-19 has frozen the real estate markets here. The CMHC forecast predicting prices will keep declining for at least two more years. And as Ted Chernecki reports, some experts are surprised at how minimal the price drops are, given the economic crisis. Three and a half months into the lockdown, and what home construction is going on is going at a snail's pace or not at all. But dire predictions for BC's housing market haven't materialized. Not yet. The longer we are away from a healthy, functioning economy, the more significant the housing market downturn has to be. I would say I'm quite surprised uh, at how minimal the price declines have been given the extent of the economic dislocations. As it did in May, CMHC continues to forecast prices will decline from 9 to 18 percent Canada-wide and stay down until the fall of 2022. Vancouver MLS sales, as predicted, are falling and will continue to fall until early next year. New price. It's another way of saying price reduced. More of these signs are popping up, especially on higher-end homes. Unemployment in Vancouver, 4 percent last year, now 14 percent. That immediately took buyers out of the market. And for sellers, who wanted strangers going through their home in a pandemic? What happened is you had a corresponding drop of the supply and the demand side of the equation. And out of that, I think uh, you've seen, although there are less sales overall, prices are still firm. 
But CMAC cautions that any claims that prices are staying firm is based on a diminishing sample size. And just look at where developers think the market's going. Housing starts in Metro Vancouver was on pace to hit 40,000 units in 2019. This year, half that in a best-case scenario and a quarter of that in a worst-case scenario. But realtors say we've seen this before in 08-09 and the Fed stepped in to lower interest rates. I think once there is certainty in the market and people are working with uh, all-time low mortgage rates, uh, I think you'll see a crush of people looking to get back into the market. CMHC notes immigration, be it interprovincial or international, is what primarily drives BC's real estate market. Many of those buyers aren't coming in and can't even if they wanted to. Ted Chernecki, Global News. The NDP government is jumping into the crisis over strata insurance in B.C. that's left some homeowners with massive increases in premiums and others unable to get insurance at all. As Sarah McDonald reports, the government says while it is taking steps now, there is no quick fix. In the months before the pandemic hit our province, another brewing crisis had homeowners on edge. In late 2019, we began to hear examples of significant shifts in the strata insurance market that went well beyond any kind of normal market corrections. On Tuesday, the province announcing framework and first steps for tackling steep insurance premiums for stratas, which have soared astronomically by more than 40% province-wide as natural disasters globally increase the financial risk for private insurance companies with the West Coast sitting on a fault line. It's just become really difficult for Stratas to get insurance. A lot of them have been dumped. I think the fact of the matter is insurance companies really just haven't been seeing the returns that they want and therefore a lot have gotten out of the market and the ones that are still in are able to put their, their prices up. The issue is complex, something nobody disputes and the province acknowledged. While introducing legislation to close loopholes, ensure greater transparency, and among other things, put an end to referral fees between brokers and third parties. We have heard that commissions uh, could have been up to, it's been reported, uh, up to 20%. If you were getting referral fees, your, your strata council would know about that. Um, it couldn't be done secretly or it's illegal. So. I really don't think that's going to make much difference. Other amendments would mandate adequate notice for any policy changes and allow stratas to dip into their contingency reserves to cover insurance costs. We're probably still a year or two before we start to see transformation in the insurance system. The province's condominium homeowner association and other stakeholders will now be consulted as what tangible impact these changes may have remain to be seen. Listen, these 40% these increases are here to stay. And the cost to own a condo continues to rise. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Some proposed changes to the province's Clean Energy Act could allow BC Hydro to sell the valuable Burrard Thermal Site on the Port Moody waterfront. That 180-acre site is now largely vacant following the shutdown of its LNG-fired turbines back in 2016. Right now, BC Hydro is prohibited from selling or leasing that land, but legislation tabled today in Victoria could change that. A number of different ideas have been floated for the future of the site, from residential development to industrial waterfront to using it as a clean tech industrial hub. 
It's hard to imagine a pub or restaurant operating without sewer service, but the landmark Blarney Stone in Gastown says it hasn't had it for nine months, spending thousands on a bypass pipe. Now the city is coming after them for the costs. What's in the pipe and where it goes in just over a minute. A shocking turn in the NASCAR investigation that led to this dramatic show of support for black driver Bubba Wallace. What it reveals coming up in sports. And Mexico shakes after a major earthquake. That's coming up on the News Hour. Right now, though, one of Vancouver's best known pubs is blasting the city tonight, saying it's failing to provide a basic sanitary service. Gastown's Blarney Stone says it hasn't had proper sewer service since last October. Grace Key reports on the third world style temporary system the owners have had to rig up. Gastown's Blarney Stone is a Vancouver institution, but it isn't having much luck with the city. And the pipe goes all the way in through there and then all the way through the the back of the kitchen in through the to the plumbing room. After a sewage backup, a plumber made this temporary fix. It runs through the building and then down into a manhole. That was nine months ago. The city came out, was very disappointed in that, and they told us that was completely illegal and that it, that needed to be taken away right away. And then the city seemed to think that it was, you know, more important to take their time and, and then leave the, the system that we had in place for, for 10 months or nine months. It's been nine months now. The owners have spent $30,000 maintaining this less than ideal system. I mean, we're not in the best area of town. And so, you know, the, the manhole cover gets thrown away or the, the pipe gets broken and then there's sewage in the, in the laneway. A plumber told the Blarney Stone the problem is with Vancouver's sewage system. The city declined comment saying it's working with the owners to resolve the complex engineering and legal concerns. They say because the area is old and the building's old, um, they needed to get engineers out here. And I mean, it's all understandable you know, for something that might take them, you know, four weeks versus a week, you know, but, but you know, four weeks to, to, to nine months. The city started some work about six weeks ago, but the problem still hasn't been fixed. The pub is open for business, but after a long closure with COVID and unexpected expenses, they're hoping their luck turns for the better. Grace Key, Global News. Coming up, our local tech expert first on the scene of a dramatic house fire. I live right there. Holy cow, they gotta get this off. They gotta. What he saw and heard the moment it happened. Also tonight, floating restaurants that never stood a chance on a flood ravaged river. Traffic is moving well north and south over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Keep in mind, though, overnight maintenance has lane closures from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Time to renew your car insurance? Call BCAA to easily renew your ICBC auto plan by phone and email and find more ways to save. Visit bcaa.com slash car. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A Surrey family is homeless tonight after flames tore through their Guildford home. The fire broke out around 1.30 this afternoon at a house on 103rd Avenue near 124th Street. By the time crews arrived, more than half the house was already engulfed in flames. Two young children, their mother and grandmother, were inside at the time, but they managed to get out safely. They've all been taken to hospital as a precaution. An investigation into the cause is underway, but the fire is believed to have started in the garage. 
Several neighbors say they heard a loud bang before the fire broke out. I was outside in the backyard uh, doing some woodworking and I heard a huge bang, a loud bang, scary. And so then I went to investigate, turned the corner and it, the entire house was in flame. I was down playing video games and my whole house shook. And I was in there with my twin sister and my caregiver. And we got out quickly, but man, there was flames coming out of the roof and everything. So that's the information that we got from bystanders as well. And, uh, and actually the garage doors have been uh, um, blown away from the home. So there was some kind of an ignition source that had enough force to remove the garage from the house. Days after the BC Coroner Service announced a spike in overdose deaths, protesters hit the downtown east side, demanding a safe drug supply that's easier to access than it is now. As Catherine Urquhart reports, the province's top doctor supports it as toxic street drugs continue to kill people. Along Hastings Street, several hundred people rally to demand a safe supply of drugs. This as BC faces a record number of overdose deaths. We need a safe supply of drugs that people use and will use to go to the people that are most likely to die. And there's nothing being done. They, they came up with a safe supply that relies on physicians to prescribe who refuse to prescribe. But the physicians have not been ordered to prescribe. The first five months of this year saw an alarming trend, with deaths spiking once COVID-19 hit in March. In May alone, 170 people died of overdoses in B.C., the single highest monthly total ever. Fentanyl to blame in 71% of those cases. B.C.'s provincial health officer is among those deeply troubled by the record numbers and is calling for a safe supply. We know that this being able to access a safe supply of drugs is one way that we can connect with people who use drugs. And it is connection that helps us address addiction. And it is connection that helps us, um, helps us overcome the many reasons why we use drugs. We've had enough of this. We want clean drugs. Advocates for a safe supply say it needs to happen now. Otherwise, the death toll will continue to rise. If nothing changes, more people will die. If the government doesn't change its policy, we'll see uh, 170 will move to 200 by the end of the summer. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Still ahead, COVID cases surging in the United States. The next couple of weeks are going to be critical. The ominous warning from the country's top coronavirus expert later. Also coming up, the Williams Lake First Nation cultivates a bright future. Why this cannabis project is one of a kind. Give a shout out, tag posts with hashtag BC Healthcare Heroes or email bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca to share with Global News in partnership with Fortis BC, ensuring your community has the energy it needs 24-7. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. Traffic is moving well between Richmond and Delta. Sussex Insurance are your auto plan experts for insurance renewals, changes, or other ICBC transactions all from home. Just visit sussexinsurance.com. I'm Trish listening Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Cell phone video out of Serbia captures the devastating demise of floating restaurants on a river swollen by rain. The structures were swept down the river into a bridge in the southern Serbian town of Kraljevo and were crushed under the span. There's no reports yet of deaths or injuries. 
Authorities declared a state of emergency in nine municipalities as rivers burst their banks, flooding fields and cutting off roads. Meteorologists warn that more rain is expected before the weather improves later this week. At least two people have died after a 7.4 magnitude earthquake shook central and southern Mexico. The powerful quake was centered near the resort of Huatulco and caused buildings and power poles to sway in Mexico City, more than 600 kilometers away. Seismic alarms sounded just moments before the quake hit at 10.29 a.m. local time, sending thousands of people into the streets for safety. A number of buildings have collapsed, and since the powerful first quake, the area has been hit by more than 140 aftershocks. In Quebec, five retired Catholic priests have been arrested at a retirement home and are now facing sexual abuse charges that date back decades. The men, aged between 78 and 88, were arrested this morning in the city of Joliet, north of Montreal. They face more than 30 charges, including gross indecency, sexual assault, and molestation. The abuse is alleged to have happened while they were priests teaching at a high school and two other religious institutions between 1961 and 1989. Investigators say 15 men have come forward saying they were abused by the priests and were minors at the time. A Saskatchewan man who pocketed thousands of dollars from a Humboldt Broncos GoFundMe is headed to jail. Andre Olesuk was sentenced to 14 months behind bars. The 33-year-old was found guilty of fraud after taking $3,700 from a fundraiser he created for the victims of the deadly bus crash in 2018. At his trial, Olesuk said he gave $4,100 in cash to a woman who came to his door raising money for the Humboldt Broncos the day after closing his GoFundMe page. But the judge rejected that claim, saying he took the money and used it for personal expenses. Well, as we heard, we're doing pretty well here in B.C. when it comes to COVID, but there are dire warnings about the increase in COVID-19 cases in the United States. 23 cases have reported a rise in new cases, uh, 23 states rather, have reported a rise in new cases with record surges in Florida, Texas and Arizona. And now the nation's top infectious disease expert says the next two weeks could be very dangerous. With long lines for testing and COVID-19 cases surging once again in the South and the West, the nation's top coronavirus experts today warned Congress the pandemic remains a very real threat. We're now seeing a disturbing surge of infections. Nationwide, 23 states are reporting an increase in cases of 25% or more over the last two weeks, with increases of 100% or more in Hawaii, Oklahoma, Montana, Florida, Arizona, South Carolina, Wyoming, and Oregon. Experts believe it could be linked to the Memorial Day weekend when millions of Americans chose to leave home and socialize in large groups. The next couple of weeks are going to be critical in our ability to address those surgings that we're seeing. The stats today, 2.3 million confirmed cases across the country, 120,000 deaths and climbing by 500 to 1,000 each day. Experts warn of a potentially horrifying death toll to come, the possibility of 200,000 deaths by the fall. We have large parts of the country uh, that, are, that believe that somehow the pandemic is over and that we're done with the pandemic. Uh, that is going to get us into a lot of trouble. We are not done with this pandemic. Today's hearing comes just three days after President Trump said a decrease in testing would slow the number of cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. 
The White House said the president was kidding, but today Mr. Trump said he was serious. His top doctors, though, insist nothing's changed. I know for sure, but to my knowledge, none of us have ever been told to slow down on testing. We're going to be doing more testing, not less. The good news, the first potential vaccine enters phase three clinical testing next month. Fauci is optimistic about a vaccine by year's end. I still think there is a reasonably good chance that by the very beginning of 2021, that if we're going to have a vaccine, that we will have it by then. The concern tonight, weeks after a surge, the death rate typically goes up. Tom Costello, NBC News, Washington. It was a crime that stunned a community and the country. Two young sisters killed on Christmas Day. But a Victoria author now wants to turn the grief into something good. He's honoring the memory of Chloe and Aubrey Berry with a children's book about loving and grieving. Brad McLeod reports. Does a caterpillar have a hundred legs? Oh, a centipede has a hundred legs. Graphic designer, now a rising children's author, David MacArthur, reads from his book, a project which has brought some peace after a horrific crime. When you tuck your kids up at night and you think that Sarah can't do that, it breaks your heart. He's talking about friend Sarah Cotton. Her daughters Chloe, six, and Aubrey, four, were killed by their father on Christmas Day 2017 while staying at his Oak Bay apartment. Andrew Barry received two life sentences. The brutal nature of the girls' deaths scarring not only Sarah, but a whole community. Two precious little innocent girls were taken from our community. And, uh, and we'll, we'll move on together. So many people wanted to do something to help support Sarah, and at the time there's there's nothing you could do. MacArthur recalls Chloe being so engaged while he read to her, it inspired him to write, What Does a Caterpillar Do? With themes of growth and loss. So in here is the playroom. All proceeds go to the service Sarah and the girls used before their death. All children who come here, there's been a crime committed against them. Already a bestseller on Amazon, MacArthur expects to donate thousands of dollars to the center. We need donations. We are we are subsidized by the government to provide uh, counseling for sexually abused children, but not other forms of trauma. With love and gratitude, Sarah Cotton. A message from the girl's mom on every book. Thank you for purchasing this book for a little one in your life. This story was written in honor of my daughters, Chloe and Aubrey, my two little butterflies. At a private memorial, two lanterns were lit in honor of the girls, something which inspired the book's ending. Two butterflies flying off into the moon really symbolizes that image that's etched in my mind forever. Brad McLeod, Global News. Still ahead, musical genius. A local musician invents some new technology striking a chord during the coronavirus pandemic. And in sports, the tennis great now apologizing for his nightclub antics after he became infected. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6 and 980 CKNW, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, presented in partnership with BCLC. With every play, you're making BC even better. It's groundbreaking operation expected to help the economy grow in a region hit hard by wildfires and the forestry decline. The Williams Lake First Nation is building a two and a half million dollar cannabis cultivation facility. 
The city says it wasn't consulted about the project, but as Aaron MacArthur explains, their green light wasn't needed. With a ceremonial shovel full of dirt, the Williams Lake First Nation launching its latest economic development. A parcel of land in an industrial park will soon be home to a new cannabis grow facility. We're um, pretty stoked. There's going to be about approximately 2,100 square feet of growing space. We're going to have the ability to harvest up to 670 kilos per year. Not everyone in Williams Lake thrilled with the project. The development sits on reserve land, and the Williams Lake First Nation doesn't require any input from Williams Lake City Council. Residents can now respond to a survey sent out Monday to weigh in on the project, and councillors have drafted a government-to-government -government letter citing a need for more robust public consultation. We do not oppose this project. I think we have some many concerns and we have many, many questions that are going unanswered. A community-to-community community consultation process is definitely something that we want to have. That engagement with the city is definitely something that we want to have. The facility is called Sugarcane. It will offer a first-of-its-kind Farmgate sale of cannabis in B.C. and will supply B.C. government stores as well as a recently opened retail shop next door. The construction could see up to 30 jobs created with 20 long-term employees. According to officials in the Sequetmik Nation, this kind of economic development, an important part of rights and title. You know, we're going to see more of these, more of these type of... Uh, facilities constructed as First Nations take on that economic side of, uh, of cannabis. The Williams Lake First Nation still needs Health Canada approval and the provincial government's go-ahead. The plan is to be ready for launch in summer 2021. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, let's see what kind of plantings are going on behind Christy Gordon right now as we check the weather forecast. <laughs> <laughs> Rainy. A little too wet for planting today, Chris. Uh, we had rain across the North Shore here and other parts of the Lower Mainland. Heavy uh, with one incredible cell moving through the North Shore in the Port Coquitlam area as well. Uh, that band was supposed to stay a little further north, but just shifted down into our region. Uh, but it's muggy, I tell you, and mild. You'll note I'm not wearing a rain jacket, that's for sure. Here's a look at the temperature. So we were up to 25 degrees at one point today, or sorry, 25 with the Humidex level, whereas at the airport you can see the range from the regular temperature on the left to what it feels like out there and out through the Fraser Valley, uh, close to th 30 degrees. But yes, another wet day. The ducks are out in the rain and so were we, weren't we? So here's a look at the band. We have a number of thunderstorms in the interior. Those should ease off late this evening, but still a risk expected through the next few hours. Now, as we head into tomorrow, this whole thing is going to clear out. Yes, sunny breaks by the afternoon, except for those of you along that eastern section, so from the Columbia region down through the Kootenai area. In the meantime, here's your forecast for your Wednesday, everyone. Lots of sunshine in the north, but you'll see some sunny breaks, especially in areas like Williams Lake, as everything shifts down and east of the region. South coast, yes, it will clear, but likely not until about 2 or 3 in the afternoon, and then we will be left with two pretty nice days. So Wednesday afternoon looking good, Thursday and most of Friday with those showers not expected to push in until later in the day. Here's your central windows weather window. A stunning day. This was Father's Day at the Kalamalka Lake area. Thank you to Sylvia for sharing that great shot with us. Oh, great spot for a hike, it looks like. Brilliant. Thanks, Christy. All right, Squire's all settled now. You didn't see the behind the scenes, I don't know, chaos that 
was going on. No, I was running up to my office yeah. to change something. Did you drop things? It looked like you dropped things. I dropped a pen. Okay. <laughs> I nearly dropped myself because it was a lot of sprinting upstairs and downstairs. All right, you're safe now. Thank you, and thank you for allowing me to catch my breath. <laughs> uh, baseball owners and players have agreed to play ball this summer. There's a deep drive to left field. Get up, Bob. It'll be a 60-game season for each team, but can the Blue Jays play their home games in Toronto because they're not going to be using hub cities? Uh, also tonight, new software that really sings. A local musician invents a better way to collaborate in the COVID era. Probably too late for me to say that coming out of a commercial. Uh, if you heard me, if don't worry about it. We're all safe We're here. We're fine. We're fine. Okay, Squire, <laughs> just do shall we call somebody just to be did. safe? Okay. We already did. All right. Uh, Major League Baseball and the players have come to an agreement to start a shortened season that will be 60 games long for each team. It is scheduled to start on July 24th. Spring training, or I guess now it's summer training, will start July 1st. Players will receive full prorated salaries, which means they'll make around 37% of what they would have made if it was a full season, and the playoffs will still be 10 teams. But they aren't going to be doing a hub city idea, which means the Blue Jays may have to play all their home games in the U.S. if something cannot be worked out with the government. They have been trying to figure things out, but if they can't get teams in and out of Toronto to play, they may have to share Tropicana Field in Tampa with the Rays or play out of their spring training facility in Dunedin, Florida. The FBI says the noose that was found in the garage that was used by Bubba Wallace at Talladega Speedway had been there since last October, and therefore it is not a hate crime. It was a rope to pull down the garage door that was tied like a noose. It should be remembered here that Bubba Wallace didn't see it. A crew member saw it, and NASCAR thought it hadn't been there before. But photographic evidence brought up by the FBI shows that it had been there before Wallace used the garage. Well, the top tennis player... Novak Djokovic has tested positive for COVID-19. It comes after Djokovic was running what was called the Idria Tour in Serbia and Croatia and a few other nations around there where there was no social distancing at all. Three other players on the tour also tested positive, including world number 19, Grigor Dimitrov. The Idria Tour was a four-city event Djokovic and his brother put together, and it looked very 2019. Fans without masks, lines people, ball boys and ball girls and players hugging after matches. Djokovic says he's deeply sorry the tour caused harm. He added it was meant to promote solidarity and compassion within the Balkans, but he admits now they were wrong to do it. It was too soon, and he said fans that attended those matches should get tested. Nobody seems to know what the CFL plans to do as far as starting a shortened season. There is talk they have discussed the hub city idea. 
We have heard earlier they're looking at starting at September, but nobody is really saying anything concrete. What is for sure is players can go to CFL facilities and work out, but they have to go through COVID-19 protocols first. This is the new reality for CFL players. Arrival at team facilities is greeted by a temperature check, followed up by a COVID symptoms questionnaire. Once a player is deemed to be symptom-free, then it's kind of business as usual inside and outside of the locker room. You know, each player has their own spray bottle with them and they're instructed to, to carry that with them everywhere they go and uh, in, the, in the weight room and to, to clean off the weights before the next person uh, takes in that uh, equipment as well. So, um, and the guy's been great at, at you know, adjusting to our protocols and we're really you know, happy that uh, they've been easy going with it as well. For professional athletes, missing any training time inside the weight room is tough. For the BC Lions, we're talking three long months without the prerequisite heavy lifting required of players this size and stature to be able to perform their jobs at the highest level possible. They were in pretty good shape. They were developing some really good strength, a good foundation of strength. And then March, you have no, no access to the same type of loads in weights that they were using uh, previously for the last two months. So then, then you got two to three months of not using weight, having to resort to band resistance, body weight movements, and just being creative. Having, you know, the right machines, the right, the right weight, and just be able to move a heavier weight around in time, of, time under tension. And, you know, we're a big believer in the weight room. It's a lot of injury preventative, and it's just nice to be back and start moving weight under some stress, and feels good to be sore. It also feels good to be outside and returning to some kind of normalcy. The largest group of players training at once is seven. And as you can see, social distancing is very much in place. After months of coronavirus lockdown, this truly is a breath of fresh football air. I mean, it's tough, you know, with the physical distancing, but, uh, you know, we're a family and we love to be around each other and uh, we do whatever it takes to keep on doing what we love and also at the same time being safe and keeping everybody else around us safe. Still don't smell anything. No. We're all good. We're yeah. good. Great. Okay. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Jay Durant for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jay? Thanks, So We'll have a reaction tonight to the city of Vancouver giving the green light to drinking in certain public places and let you know when you might be able to enjoy a beer or wine on a plaza. Also, an investigation into allegations of racism in our health care system is impacting some frontline workers in ways you might not expect. Doctors and nurses say they themselves have been targets of abuse from patients. We'll have those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11. All right, Jay, thank you. All right, when we come back, our salute to our healthcare heroes and musicians jamming on session wire, even when they can't be in the same city. How it works, coming up. All right, time to recognize one of our hardworking BC healthcare heroes stepping up for BC during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tonight's nomination comes from Gwen Donaldson, who would like to recognize her good friend, Zena Lind. Zena is a nurse who works in the emergency department of Vancouver General Hospital as a care management leader. In addition to working hard on the job, Zena also volunteers her spare time to give back. She's traveled to Haiti to assist doctors performing surgeries on men with prostate problems. She's also the organizer of the annual Critical Care Conference in Whistler, which brings together healthcare professionals from all over the world to address the needs of critical care physicians. So well done, Zena. We are very proud of you and so obviously are your friends. And if you have a healthcare hero you'd like to see recognized, send an email to bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. Include a few pictures and a story about why they're your hero and hopefully we'll feature them next.
All right, well, jamming takes on a bit of a different uh, form these days in COVID, Squire. Well, this, what we're going to show you right now, actually wasn't put together because of COVID-19, but it certainly works in this time. This is Session Wire. It's a BC-based company that launched its product two years ago. And what it does is it allows musicians and producers to work remotely, but with studio quality sound. This you get CD, high def quality audio, and, and people have done the comparison test between a big studio like this and the Session Wire audio, and they can't tell the difference. And Colin is someone who knows what life is like in the studio, either working on his own album or someone else's. And what Session Wire can do is keep costs down on a record by not having to fly musicians to one spot. It's funny, I had a guy play harp from Romania, and I was kind of searching through the internet, and I found a guy who played harp because I had the song, and I had this little part that I wanted some angel sound. And of course, I could do it on a keyboard, but I thought, well, I, like the whole world is available. Take it, eh? It's also an example of how technology has changed the world of recording. Instead of always going to big studios, money is saved by using home studios. And in these times, safety is also a consideration. With the whole COVID thing, it's like, where do we get something like that? Oh, by the way, just so happened to have already built it. Session Wire now has around 5,000 users, and it's growing. And it's growing with some of the big names in the music industry joining up. Peter Frampton was just on board it a week ago, and, and uh, some of these guys like Terry Lewis, who's done Janet Jackson, and all these big producers, and they're using it daily. And I, I think one of the cool ones um, is that the Carol King James Taylor new record, a lot of it's going to be done on Session Wire. So um, it's definitely something that the pros are using and people will soon, soon find out. Colin, you may have seen if you ever saw Randy Bachman over the years. Doing basically the Burton Cummings part. Oh, wow. Okay. Very cool. All right, let's check in with Christy for one final word on the weather. Christy? So typical for our June, it's raining on top of me, but the sun's coming out behind. I should be looking for a rainbow, I suppose. That's your day <laughs> tomorrow as well. We are expecting showers in the morning, but sunshine, I would say, by late afternoon. Congratulations to the graduating class at Upper Lynn Elementary, including my nephew Colton. We'll see you guys there tonight, physically distanced, of course.